morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Steve Williamson here. We have with us today Professor Paul Linz from the Political Science Department up at NAU. He's been on several times before. We like to talk to Paul when there's ever um, an issue we talk to him about, uh, what, Syrian refugees and and Turkey. Uh, Paul teaches political science. He's been teaching up there for many years. Um, And he always has a good balance point of view. I'm someone who don't doesn't watch TV, and I I know I, when we were ta- I was talking to one of our other guests, I realized how much I miss because I don't watch TV. I mean, I don't watch I don't watch any anything except you know re- recorded movies without ads. So, um, but I've been watching the the news, Paul, about Ukraine, and I wondered it's kind of an odd way to start the show, but I wondered what you thought of the coverage of Ukraine on the on the I guess the uh, all the news channels and well, they're they're definitely on the ground like they usually are, uh, like almost instantaneously from when things were getting started, uh, and they've done a good job of showing what's happening in a lot of these various cities. But I think there's still because it is a war zone, there's a lot of areas where they can't go, and so I think there's a lot that we're not seeing in the Western news coverage. But it's more than what's being shown in Russia. Because, you know, Putin's government is pretty much blocking a lot of what's happening from a Western perspective. And so he's using a lot of propaganda to try and win over Russian support uh, for his efforts. But right now it seems that uh, the Russian people are not supporting him because there are thousands that are going out into the streets uh, protesting what uh, Putin has done. So Russian people that I knew... Uh, very patriotic about Russia, very proud of their, their cultural heritage. Um, they have almost no independent sources of news, as I understand it, from reading, from listening to our news sources. What had built up a kind of underground series of sources and Internet things has now been pretty much eliminated. So the Russian people are only hearing Putin's version of what's going on. As far as I understand, yes, that's what's happening is that they're restricting access to the Internet. Uh, They just announced that if you speak out against the war and what the Russian military is doing, that you could face 15 years in jail. Yeah. um, You know, you you always tell us that uh, political science uh, scientists are not good at being predictive. Would you have predicted the war watching the beginning of the of the. A long kind of conflict uh, between Ukraine and Russia, which has all been non-military except for the eastern part of the country. I would have uh, I would have not predicted the actual invasion. Uh, I would have thought that would it have been, it would have been similar to what was going on in places like Syria, where it was the you know support of uh, of the government, uh, and in this case, in the case of Ukraine, it would be the support of the rebels, the use of the Wagner Group, which is the the military rebels uh, from Russia that go in without wearing patches, so they basically try and blend in and support the ethnic Russians and Eastern Ukrainian. I thought it, it would have continued along those lines, but what we've seen over the course uh, of the last, let's say, 12 years 
is that the uh, limited response by numerous American presidents led uh, Putin to say, hmm, let me see how far I can escalate this. And I think that helped uh, in his calculus to decide that he wanted to try and make Russia great again. I've always wondered about Putin. We've been watching him for for years. So he did what I see is he did this massive invasion of the Ukraine. But he's been talking to American presidents, French presidents, German uh, prime ministers uh, and the whole world for decades, for what, 22 years. Mm-hmm. He's been talking to foreign, foreign nations and it it's never gotten through to his basic feeling that that um, Russia was horribly treated and that he's going to um, um, reestablish the, basically the power of Russia. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a genuine feeling among Russian people. I, there's a great book, I can't think of her name now, where she goes and interviews people about their nostalgia for the old Soviet Union. The Soviet Union made me proud. We were a superpower. Everybody was afraid of us. Now we're just Russia, this sort of medium-sized country with a medium-sized um, medium-sized military. But this is this is kind of a reach to actually invade Ukraine. I mean, it's 44 million people, I guess, plus it's a big country geographically. Yeah, it's a it's a miscalculation on his part because it's it's obviously as we're seeing now with the extent of sanctions, you know, by the United States and by Europe, you know, even Switzerland, you know, the notoriously neutral country mm-hmm. is putting economics is participating in the sanctions, you know, and being taken off of the SWIFT system. You know, the hope is that that's going to, you know, squeeze Putin to to stop this and to come to some type of mediated settlement. You know, and that's the you know, this desire for uh, of Russian nationalism that Putin has to make Russia great again, you know, is in part fueled by NATO's extension uh, into Eastern Europe in the 1990s. You know, we took advantage of the fact that we had, quote unquote, won the Cold War. Uh, to influence Eastern Europe and get these countries to become part of NATO to help with European Union expansion, you know that that's a threat. That was an existential threat to Russian nationalists, not just to Putin, but to to other Rus- Russian nationalists. Yeah, I I've uh, always been a foreign policy uh, freak, and so I was one of the people who opposed moving NATO so near the the old Soviet Union. I thought. This is really provocative, and I don't see what we get out of extending NATO to Lithuania and Estonia and so forth and on. I didn't understand what we got out of it, and we were pushing right up against uh, Russia. Um, the thing that I see is that about U- Ukraine, and, and tell me if I'm right, is that I don't see how Russia is ever going to close the borders of Ukraine to arms and stuff because it's such a huge country and because it's got borders with all these different countries and there are mountains here and forests there. And Right. Well, obviously, you know, the war is not going as they had planned because the hope was to go right to, to Kiev and be able to overthrow the government, put in a, a puppet uh, regime. But since that's not happening and since they're getting all sorts of, of monetary and weapons assistance from uh, NATO countries and including the United States, that 
basically now what Russia is trying to do is block off the southern uh, region and continue to hold Donbass in the east because that borders the Black Sea. That's where the Ukrainians are going to sell any grain that they're producing. You know, that's one of their major exports is is grain. Uh, and then you also have, you know, the oil and ga- the gas pipeline that runs through uh, the country to Western Europe. You know, and so that's another uh, geostrategic reason that Russia wants to have control of that part of the country is so that they can control economically uh, what happens because of the importance that selling oil means for uh, the country's wealth. Yeah, and uh, Ukraine, I guess, is one of the world's largest exporters of wheat and, and grains. It's a, it's a huge area. It's always been the bread basket of yeah. the old Soviet Union. Um, so that's what they're doing in the south where the Russians are having the most success. They haven't taken Odessa yet, but a lot of uh, the, the Black Sea and, and the other uh, on the ocean, a lot of those places are already decimated in some cases and, and occupied in others. Yeah, and they're using uh, kind of just uh, bombing of hospitals, bomb, you know, using artillery on the cities because they're trying on civilian targets, too. To try and pressure the Ukrainians to not support the uh, the Ukrainian government and to to not continue the fight. That's the cause enough pain among your enemy. They're not the only country that does it. That that however they disguise it, they systematically attack the civilians that they think are on the other side because they can't defeat or or def- you know I think in some cases even defeating. Say the the guerrillas or the rebels from from one side doesn't give you the in game, right? So they're forced to uh, attack civilian population. Um, the Ukrainian and Russian population are so mixed. The um, Ukrainian nationalism was very tentative. At least it, it appeared to the Russians like it wasn't firmly set. Uh, there were there was a Russian faction they would be in control, and then there was a pro-Western faction and they would be in control. It kind of went back and forth. Um, it I looked at the geophysical or political science theories of, about the conflict. Realism is one side, and right. kind of liberalism another. And when I looked at it, Paul, I, I didn't see that either theory adequately explained what Putin did. I don't, what's your take on this? Well, there is you can look at it from competing perspectives that as a realist, you know, you would say, yeah, I'm, you know, Russia wants to restore greatness. The um, the expansion of NATO uh, to the east uh, is a threat. It's a direct threat to, uh, you know, the larger uh, country of Russia or to the old notion of the Soviet Union. Uh, and so as a result, yeah, we are going to build up our military on uh, on the border to try and get NATO to back down but when NATO didn't back down it was it was the strategic mistake you know and so likely what realists would say is that this is creating a security dilemma you know that we're going to continue to see escalation on both sides that's why it's important uh, for liberals to say well we've got to come in and use negotiations let's use talks let's use diplomacy uh, to try and mitigate this desire to escalate. Because in some ways, the 
initiative seems seems to be on Ukrainian side because they've stopped Russian troops. Yeah. And Russia seems to to be on a kind of defensive side. I know that's not visible, uh, but I can't. Can you see a, a an end game where Russia wins this thing and actually achieves what Putin originally had in mind, or even something close to it? No, I don't think Russia will win at all because uh, the United States is actually uh, has led the coalition of NATO forces, um, you know, to supply. Uh, military aid to uh, the Ukrainian government, you know, and that's just going to continue to happen, you know, so they're going to continue to fight back against the Russian troops. You know, there are reports that are coming out of Ukraine that the Russian troops are demoralized. Many are trying to flee that they're not necessarily fighting, you know, not to mention the economic sanctions that have been levied against the oligarchs, but also the uh, Putin uh, and other supporters. You know that I think that's going to have a huge uh, influence on them trying to come to some sort of mitigated uh, settlement uh, to the conflict. You know because Russia has 630 billion dollars of reserves, but they can't spend that money. You know the West is now trying to make it much harder for them to spend that money in the global market. You know, and so that's going to lead to. Uh, the potential of, Rus- of Russia cutting off the supply of oil and gas to Europe, you know, which leads to all sorts of uh, other consequences. So Putin thought that Ukraine was weak and yeah. he could take it easily and yeah. the United States would put in more sanctions and, and the Europeans would be hesitate to put in sanctions because they suffer more from sanctions than the United States does. Cause yeah. Truthfully, folks, if, if, if we never bought another thing from Russia, we would barely notice it compared with China. If we stopped, if we, if we boycotted China completely, you'd notice it everywhere. Everything you did, everything you bought. What do you think? Putin's been around a long time. We've always, or I've always considered him, um, Sort of a cold-hearted, almost uh, sociopathic figure, mm-hmm. calculator. Um, you know, when I look at him, I don't want to compare him to Trump, or maybe I do. Trump was this wild, crazy, over-the-top kind of demagogue. Uh, Putin's always been calculated and 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 sort of careful and methodical. Mm-hmm. And how did he end up so making such a mistake, Paul? Oh, wow. Um, I think there's there's a number of reasons. I think, number one, he wants to have that legacy because he's, you know, what a lot of folks have said is he's 70, 70 years old. You know, he, uh, he, of course, wants to rule Russia forever as long as he's alive. He's established a network of oligarchs uh, who he's basically given favors to, you know, allow access to government resources, and they've stolen you know, billions of dollars <laughs> yeah. from the Russian government, the Russian people, that he's he's doing this because he feels that that's going to be a legacy issue, that if he can restore Russian greatness, you know, that that's going to allow him to ride off into the sunset because he's he's seen the weak reaction over the last 20 years from the West in not responding more forcefully, you know, towards the annexation of Crimea, for example, you know, that now he's able to say, well, let me see how much more I can take. Now, the Rush or the West standing up to Russia right now is a very good thing because now he's seeing that 
this idea that, oh, Ukraine will be uh, a piece of cake, that we'll just be able to go in and overthrow the government. With that not happening, what we're going to see is a, a further conflict between NATO countries and Russia for the future of, of democracy in Europe. Do you think Russia or Putin as the controlling person in Russia, do you think he sees an end game where Russia wins now, or does he just need some way to mitigate this conflict? Can he see how how is Russia ever going to win in this situation? How are they going to how are they going to expend it? They're making millions of enemies yeah, around making, the world. They're making millions of enemies, but I think you know on in one on one hand he could escalate further. You know, and at the most extreme, they were, there was talk of using tactical nuclear weapons as the the end yeah. point of that escalation. But that's going to cause the United States to directly intervene. You know, and he doesn't want that because, as we've seen, the Russian military is a lot weaker than everybody was assuming. And so that would be uh, almost the end of Russia. You would see a coup d'etat potentially in Russia uh, as a result of something like that. I think... I think what could happen is that it ends up being some type of mitigated solution, you know, that uh, the United States and other NATO countries, their support of the Ukrainian government and the rebels that are fighting, that that ends up pushing the Russians back to potentially the east, uh, eastern part of the country where ethnic Russians are in a majority, that maybe they come to some type of negotiated settlement that allows for Russia to continue to sell uh, natural gas uh, to Europe, you know, and they have the, the ability to control that pipeline that runs through the Ukraine, allows them uh, to continue selling oil on the market and slowly uh, be reinstalled back into the global financial markets. Uh, but they have to, there's going to have to be a withdrawal of Ukrainian forces for that to happen because right now I think it's going to continue to be a back and forth. So, a, a win, I don't think, is possible for Putin. I don't see how it would be. I mean, I can't, I can't, you know, I'm no expert, but I can't sparse. Uh, I can't figure out how that would happen. I mean, even if he won, if he rolled over completely over Ukraine, mm -hmm. he'd still have a problem of 44 million people being forced to join. Right. Russia, who don't want to and have a lot of weapons given to them by us. And that's, that's just going to lead to further instability, and then you'll have an occupying force that's going to bolster Ukrainian nationalism, which is going to lead to you know, Russian forces at some point going back in, uh, in full force to try and tamp that down. So that's, the, that's the, uh, the interesting thing about politics, at least for me, in the study of foreign policy is that there is no winners and losers. It's not that uh, stark of a choice, that a lot of what happens as a result of the excellent efforts by the Ukrainians is that a lot of it will be incremental. And so how, how much is Russia willing to save face at this point now that uh, they've essentially been initially defeated uh, by the Ukrainian rebels how much are they willing to save face uh, on the, and come back into the international community? Because, you know, the United States has the opportunity that we could strengthen the sanctions even more. We could go after Russian oil and gas companies, prevent them from completely selling oil, bankrupt the entire Russian economy. Uh, but that would have the second order consequences of hurting the Russian people. 
you know, and so potentially they try and revolt uh, domestically. But there's the likelihood that that happens is not very likely given the what the Russian security forces are doing domestically, you know, monitoring for protests and all of that. It could create even more instability because what we don't want, what we don't want is the collapse of Russia as a state. All right. So Putin has always seemed, I think, to most Westerners, I mean, I know that he, you know, sort of put one over on George Bush, who really was convinced he was a nice guy. And remember what happens is Russia uh, uh, collapses. It's an absolutely chaotic situation. Um, uh, I met a bunch of uh, uh, Russian business trainees right before the, the revolution and Yeltsin and stuff. And some of them, even though they were social psychologists, ended up with machine guns in the Kremlin, right. you know, the whole thing, the White House. And, and, and so you ended up with chaos. And then Putin comes along and he solves the problem of chaos. He gets rid of a lot of the visible oligarchs, and now he's replaced them with his own oligarchs, right? Um. We've always thought he was sort of a, a cold-hearted, sociopathic guy, but he's made a massive egotistical mistake. What happened? He got just he got more and more isolated, or has he deteriorated mentally? Or, I mean, it seems like it seems like the, he would do all kinds of sneaky stuff in the way we used to think about Putin, but he wouldn't do this because this set off this massive response. I know he didn't think that was going to happen. He say, his idea is the West is weak and won't ever respond. And particularly the Europeans have an awful lot to lose. And I think the thing, only thing I'd, I'd add to this is that, folks, when you do a boycott, we're going to pay a price for it. Our oil is just going and gas is just going to go up. I mean, uh, Russia is one of the largest oil and gas producers in the world. And you cut that supply, it's going to be a problem. It's also one of the largest grain exporters, I believe, now. And so you cut that off, there's going to be an international price to pay for it. But do you think there's a process of isolation or something that happened with Putin that he got so far off of what we think is normal snaky behavior by him? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that's kind of, you know, sort of cold heart, slit eyed snake, you know. And sure, sure. They're you know, exaggerating. Right. But, there, you know, there's the old adage that power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts. Absolutely. You know, and so I think we've all known those who have uh, have paid attention to to Russia and to leaders like Putin. They know that he's a Russian nationalist. They know that the events that we talked about earlier this morning about him going in. Uh, to Ukraine was in part to try and restore Russian greatness. I think the co that the uh, COVID, you know, with him being in isolation, there was stories coming out that he basically was in a bunker and isolated himself from everyone, you know, to to stay away. That that maybe he got cabin fever, and then that this cabin fever like flipped a switch and all of a sudden he decides that hey now is the time to do this but i think i think he's still a rational i think he's a rational leader who thought that given the behavior of the west that now might be the opportunity to do this you know given the fact that the united states was you know 
I was able to influence President Trump to do X, Y, and Z, you know, and he basically said that I was a great leader and left me alone, Where and President Obama was very weak in declaring a red line in Syria and the use of chemical weapons, uh, and then uh, obviously the U.S. behavior in Libya influencing Russia to intervene in 2015, that all of this behavior was it just kind of fed uh, his so he thought the U.S. was weak in Syria by us not going in there and sort of kicking butt against Assad, and he thought the West was weak in Libya because they they may probably encourage the overthrow of Gaddafi. Yeah, but they didn't do much afterward. They let the country sort of drift. Right, and then he that put an opening for more Russian troops. And I believe he's. Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, or at least along the northern tier, he's got ambitions for more Russian involvement. Right, I, and in, I've heard that. I don't know. Yeah, in Sub-Saharan Africa and in East Africa, they're trying to establish more uh, of a presence and an influence, just as the U.S. and China are there in East Africa going after piracy, but also establishing relationships with countries uh, in East Africa. You mentioned China. What do you think the chances are um, China's held out against the sort of world condemnation and the boycott of Russia for what they've done? Um, what do you think, what can China do for Russia at this point? Well, Russia, uh, excuse me, uh, China could allow Russia to trade with them still. They could uh, accept uh, you know, currency uh, from them and give them uh, either one or uh, dollars back in exchange to help them uh, bypass the sanctions. The United States, though, just today threatened China to say, don't don't allow Russia to escape the sanctions. We will make it harder on you internationally if you uh, help Russia to, to uh, bypass the sanctions. So China can offer them uh you know, the economic avenue of trade uh, bypassing the Western uh, sanctions or number two, they could provide military assistance because the Russians have asked the Chinese for military aid uh, to support their operation in Ukraine. But Ukraine, um, the Chinese have said, no, we're not going to do that. And at a the recent uh, United Nations Security Council meeting, they uh, abstain from voting against uh, uh, Russia's operation there. A lot of um, commentators and folks watching foreign affairs think that, you know, if Russia had gotten to take over Ukraine, it would be sort of a, a go signal for China to take over uh, Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah. That's because been the, same, the logic is the same. These are Chinese. We've got to protect them from or whatever. Yeah, except we have a defense treaty with Taiwan that would directly uh, – obligate the United States to respond militarily against China. Are we sending enough support to Taiwan that they could be able to resist China? I believe we are, yeah. We And we, we constantly patrol uh, with our Navy. We patrol uh, the Taiwan Strait. So, yeah, uh, I think China was definitely looking upon this as, you know, and that's what everyone was saying, as you were saying, the commentators were saying, well, we have to look towards what, 
this could mean for the Chinese. But given uh, given what's happened and the response by the international community to uh, Russia, I think that's going to have China be very wary about doing that now. Good now, point. Good don't, point. Don't get, me, don't get me wrong. Like Xi's goal is to eventually take back Taiwan. That is a stated objective of, of Xi. Uh, but given the West's response and how severe it's become, I think that's that's a sign that that China just needs to continue to bide its time. So you don't think Putin has gone suddenly crazy in in sending the Russian troops in, but I think you know they they're the old the old Soviet Union uh, saying was um, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. The Russian army didn't turn out to be nearly as good as I think Putin thought it was, or nearly as motivated. Yeah, well, there's also reports that you know money was being grafted. You know that was supposed to go to modernizing the Russian military, but clearly that money did not go to modernize the Russian military. Because if it was the power that it you know that it claimed to be, it would not be asking the Chinese for military aid. Right. That's a real sign, isn't yeah, it? That, was, that was a huge tell for me when I saw that uh, yesterday. I, ha- I haven't seen anybody yet, and I've been w- watching the news. I haven't seen anybody mention that. What a tell that is that they already need equipment. And this thing has just sort of started. Yeah. And they're fighting basically against a well-armed army. The Ukrainian army still exists. It's still there. Yeah. Um, the, you know, when I lived in a Ukrainian neighborhood in, in New York, the, the thing that I noticed was that, you know, there'd be a Russian restaurant and Ukrainians and, and Russians. It sort of blended in. It went, when it went back and forth. It, it wasn't the... Hard. They're like brothers. It's like you know, they're like the they have the languages are the closest. Probably the people are the most intermarried. Uh, Ukraine and Russia have this huge long history together. I mean, originally in the middle Middle Ages, right? I mean, Kiev, Kiev was the center of Russian uh, of, of Russian resistance to the to the forces coming in from the east from the steppes. Mm-hmm. Well, they're, they're you know they're ethnic Slavs as well, yeah. so there is that connection there, and that's that's one of the, I think the most fascinating parts is that you have, you know, a Slavic people that are willing to you know attack fellow Slavs, you know, yeah. and so that's that's one of the things that uh, really is fascinating is the extent that Ukrainian nationalism has really been bolstered, you know, by it really is pretty amazing because. Yeah. Um, I was reading some reports, I think in New York Review of Books, about a fellow who had done some reporting from Ukraine before all this happened, right before it was happening. And he was seeing, you know, pro-Russians here and pro-Russians there and all this sort of stuff. And now um, you have, I think, a, is, uh, sort of some some pro-Russian uh, uh, leaders are now Ukrainian nationalists. Mm-hmm. It's it's amazing to see millions of women and children mostly fleeing Ukraine to how's this going to end to Poland and everywhere else? I mean, over a million uh, refugees now have fled uh, Ukraine and some were estimating that it could be up to two million. Yeah. You know, and uh, I just read this weekend that the European Union has given uh, Ukrainians a full year of asylum. Like they, they, you can go anywhere in the European Union, right. you know, for a year. Now juxtapose that to the Syrian refugee crisis. Right. 
you know, from uh, a few years back, the the contrast uh, right. in hypocritical response there, I think, is very telling. I think so. No, these are white folks with, uh, uh, you know, blonde women with a ton, ton of kids. And uh, but I guess to some extent, you know, Europeans are Europeans and, mm-hmm. and Ukraine is part of Europe. Syria is way off somewhere else. Sure. Whatever's happening in the war, the, the sad war in Ethiopia, uh, these constant fighting between these ethnic groups that have been going on since I was young. Um, you know, I had Ethiopian friends who went back to Ethiopia and just sort of just disappeared in the civil wars going on back 40 years, 50 years ago. Yeah. Well, so, remember the, the, the previous uh, refugee migration, the Syrian one, was not just including Syrians. It was including uh, Libyans, folks from Chad and Sudan, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, all making their way to Europe. You know, and, yeah, and there's, just, there's always um, a lot of iffiness with, with refugees. Are they really telling the story? Or where are they actually from? And who are they actually? There's always some iffiness. But that iffiness shouldn't lead to rejection of them and right. to to sort of um, international hard heartedness, especially especially with countries that are democracies, right. you know, that are supposed to hold up human rights as one of the most valuable principles. And we're seeing, you know, the principle of defending these democratic ideals being threatened, not just with the refugee issue, but even in how uh, the West was slow in reacting to what was happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And none of those other people who fled by millions to Europe came from democratic countries, right? Mm-hmm. They, didn't, they didn't represent a democratic country. They didn't represent Europe. And so the attitude was different. But I think you're right. The hypocrisy of open arms for Ukrainians... I don't know what else they can do. I mean, the, the refugees are coming. You either, I don't know what, where, you know, well, they could politically. They closed the borders. That's yeah. what they did uh, in 2015 yeah. to, or 2014 to 2015. You know, Italy uh, would not even process the refugees coming on boats uh, from North Africa. They would have them dock uh, at the port. And then they would process them there uh, in the boat, but they weren't allowed to set foot on Italian soil. What I've seen in in, in Europe is that it's a more, much more multicultural world than it used to be. First, of folks know if you if you get accepted in the UN, you can go anywhere in the UN. So if you're Portuguese, European Union, you can yeah, in the European Union, you can go work in in Ireland, and everybody is all over place. Um, um, So let's go back to Putin, and I know I'm circling around here, kind of. You don't think he suddenly went insane in this process, and you just think he 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 built up all he selected all the data that he thought I guess would 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 make it easy and do something great for Russia, and he didn't look at anything else. Well, yes, because this was he saw. In four years, he saw that there was this tepid response, and so he was hoping that it would be quick and easy because if it was a success, let's say, well, how about Moldova? You know, how about yeah. Latvia? How about all these other Eastern European yeah. republics? And, you know, that would, you know, if NATO didn't do anything, you know, that was going to uh, have him achieve 
that desired goal to be the great Russian leader that restored the former Soviet Union. A lot of people know where Ukraine is, but some of our uh, NATO allies, I don't think people know where Latvia is. A lot of people have never heard of Estonia. They, and I think you, if, you're, if you're Putin, you think, well, will NATO really go to war over Estonia? I mean, you know, this has always been our territory, political control. And we have a whole lot of Russians living in all these uh, Baltic countries. So I think that 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 the miscalculation I guess when I look at it is first I see the shock to Europeans yeah. they've always been behind the US in, between, in terms of geo, doing geophysical trust the Germans have never wanted to get in a fight with anybody you know uh, every, everybody else is sort of is hunkered down um, they join US campaigns in Afghanistan but minimally just enough to mm-hmm. to, to do it I think it must have been a terrible shock to see a whole big chunk of, to them, Europe disappear under Russian control. I mean, that's the way they've acted. They've acted, you know, the United States is always trying to get them to do stuff. And this time, it doesn't look like, the, you know, I mean, I'm sure American uh, diplomacy was good. But it doesn't look like they really had to push that hard to get the Europeans to respond. It looked like what. Putin did scared the hell out of them. Yeah, and that's why Poland asked for American uh, soldiers to come and be stationed there, uh, and that's why we sent you know upwards of ten thousand now to both Poland and Germany, just because you have to remember that in the nineteen nineties we started drawing down our troops after the Cold War because we had quote unquote won. You know, and as a result, you know, that led to the efforts that we saw in Afghanistan and Iraq where we had minimal amounts of troops engaging in, in conflict there. But the, the soldiers in Russia, uh, in, excuse me, in uh, Europe, the American presence there was, was being drawn down throughout the last 20 years. And Trump was going to even do more troop, right, withdraw exactly. troops. From, and even from. threatened to withdraw us from NATO. Yeah. You know, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that that wasn't able to happen. Uh, because it would have made the situation a whole lot worse. So Putin if they invades Ukraine, Ukrainians resist, and we think that this is going to be going on for a while. Or I know you political scientists hate me <laughs> for asking for predictions, uh, but uh, how do you how do you think this thing is going to, to end, or sort of end, shall we say? Uh, well, uh, I think you're going to see a protracted uh, struggle, uh, you know, maybe even a war of attrition where, uh, you know, the, the Russians are going to continue to bombard the cities, but the United States and NATO are going to continue to support the Ukrainian government. They're going to, you know, support them as much as they can to ensure that Kiev doesn't fall, you know, and so that's why. The end is not going to be something where either the Ukraine is completely occupied uh, or it's, you know, continued shelling. I think it's going to be some type of negotiated settlement uh, because the talks are continuing. And Russia just wants to have influence in the country. They don't want NATO to have as much influence. So it's going to be some type of, I think, negotiated settlement that Russia continues to have influence in the ethnic Russian part of Ukraine in the east and that uh, the West, uh, with the U.S. and NATO, will support uh, Ukrainian nationalism and support 
you know, the Zelensky government. Because Zelensky now is going to be considered a war hero. Uh, yeah. uh, he is currently. So I think this bodes very well for him in the future, as long as he can stay safe. It's interesting that it, it's Putin, this sort of uh, snake-eyed, with remote person who sits at these incredibly long tables from everybody else. I don't know if he's afraid of COVID or what, or that's just sort of who he is nowadays well it's never it's never the leaders who bear the brunt of war it's yeah. all it's always the the citizens of your country that are bearing the the highest cost of it for your desire for money and power that's true throughout human history yeah exactly it doesn't the change soldiers not the generals who get killed by exactly you know it just you know just change the year you know it could, we, we could be in 1912 and it would still be the same thing as 2022 yeah, I mean, uh, Europe, the U.S. has sort of intervened uh, to try to stop the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, intervened in Russia. So Russians have a long memory of that kind of, of that kind of uh, treatment. The Soviet Union collapsed, and all our NGOs and stuff went into the the, the remnants of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. I never thought they could keep operating there forever, given Russian nationalism. It always seemed to me I wasn't surprised when they were pushed out. Mm-hmm. I was surprised with the brutality and the absoluteness of which they were pushed out of Russia. And I know we did. Look, Soviet Union collapsed on its own, right? We didn't collapse the Soviet Union. I mean, Reagan took, you know credit for this and that, but that thing collapsed under its, it, its, its own power. The corruption in the old Soviet Union was amazing. Um, again, working in a Russian bar, I mean, we were getting vodka off ships, you know, sure. illegally brought into the U.S. And but the, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan didn't help, and so yeah. the, you know, the U.S. support of the Mujahideen there, that really sapped the monetary coffers of, of the Soviet Union, you know, that influenced Gorbachev mm-hmm. in implementing perestroika and glasnost. Yeah. Which led to what you just mentioned, with the the corruptness and the collapse. That uh, yeah, it's you know it's this is a very tenuous time for for the country of Russia. What Put, what Putin decides to do is going to have major consequences not just for Europe, but I think for the international order more broadly. So Putin rose to power on the collapse of the Soviet Union and bringing order to the Soviet Union and restoring the the economy. Mm-hmm. Now, it's almost like it's come for circle. I mean, if he'd stayed out of Ukraine, uh, Russia would be doing pretty good. But he didn't. And so now he's brought disaster to Russia, uh, economic collapse. Um, 45 minutes goes by uh, pretty quick. We've got a couple of minutes left. You've got any predictions you want to share with us, political scientists? Uh, well, uh, I, I think what you should all pay attention to is the reactions of the international community going forward. Are they going to continue to react to what Putin is doing? If we allow Putin to continue uh, the war, uh, as he has, then that's going to lead to further trouble for the refugee crisis and further trouble domestically within Russia. So I think Putin's aggressiveness has to be met by a solid response by the West. Yeah, it's hard to think that that he would. Um, <laughs> well, dictators survive all kinds of silly uh, suggestions. 
Um, all right, folks. Thank you for being with Democratic Perspective. Remember that um, we are dependent on your donations, and please go to our website, vvid.org, and and donate. There's a little donut donate button, and, and you can put in there as little as one dollar a month. <laughs> but uh, we really do need your uh, support. I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks. Um, I just told Paul I'm having um, a total knee replacement, so Karen uh, McClellan will be hosting the show for the next couple of weeks. We have more interviews with him, people running for office in in, in Arizona. Karen's really connected up with the, the that the electoral pol- uh, politics and uh, and people running, and we're going to have a new program on the uh, CRT critical race theory in two weeks we'll follow up on our first show thank you for being with us you've been listening to democratic perspective brought to you by the verde valley independent democrats a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the verde valley sedona northern arizona and our nation at large catch us every monday morning after the 8 a.m news right here on am 780 kazm it's beautiful out there folks have a great day